hello. You are listening to another episode of the Niagara Moon podcast. As always, I'm Thomas Irwin. And like many episodes before, we're talking about an album today. And it's it's a special day. It, today is really, it's the one. It's uh, We're talking Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, Brian Frickin' Wilson uh, from 1966. I don't know if I would have chosen to talk about this particular album, actually, uh, as much as I do dearly love it, um, if it wasn't for the suggestion of a couple different Moondogs. Uh, it's just, you know, who doesn't know this album? Just its legacy, its uh, its gigantic influence. Maybe I'll find a little bit of space carved out to uh, to make any new comments or observations on it. But uh, that's what we're doing today. I'm talking pet sounds. Um, I got Joe back. It's been a while since I got to talk to Joe, so that was lovely catching up with him. He's one of my uh, biggest fans. But yeah. Joe and I are going to talk all things Pet Sounds, Beach Boys, Brian Wilson. Let's do it. I may not always love you, but long as there are stars above you. Some of the songs I, I knew, but I didn't know were Beach Boys. Uh, one of the main ones being Sloop John B., which then I realized was a cover, just because I heard that song all the time. Mm-hmm. But my main exposure to this album and Beach Boys in general was God Only Knows, which was one of my favorite songs. Everybody knows that one, right? Yeah. But digging into the legacy of the album, uh, positive and like how some people just didn't really want to associate with it because of the time period that it was in and how experimental it was was really interesting it went through a whole different kind of stages of public perception especially in the united states i mean it feels feels like people in the united kingdom were always on board with this uh this album being something special yeah but yeah so we're <laughs> hi joe uh we're, we're talking uh, pet sounds from hi. 1966 today for this episode mm-hmm. of the podcast, and uh, I've we've been talking about talk uh, discussing this particular album for a very long time, and uh, Moon Dogs in my uh, Facebook group, the Pantheon Bar, had had requested this one specifically, and uh, it's it's one of those albums that has had movies made about it, hello, and and several books, and it's like it's such a famous influential album especially uh, with the kind of music that I'm into and what I make. And it's, so I'm like excited about it, but I'm also kind of like, where, where do I, (laughs) what's my contribution going to be today? You know, everybody's talked about it so much, but uh, thank thank you for joining me on a, on a particularly important episode. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's been uh, been a long time in the making, like you said. It has. Uh, Yeah. Very, very glad to have you back on the podcast. And, um, I am surprised, I'll say first off, that you didn't really know much about the band or this album before uh, researching for today. Yeah, um, I I feel like Beach Boys existed in my peripherals a lot. Um, I feel like Beach Boys are almost like a standard band, but yeah. um, looking at this now, it's so interesting that, first of all, this is their 11th album, apparently. It's nuts, huh? Um, I think I saw that in the numbers. He's, he's And Brian Wilson's 23 when he's making this, so what? <laughs> they started at 12? Right. That's the 60s for you. <laughs> Put out the product. Exactly. 
Oh, man. I think they fell into the trap. Well, not trap, but the, the pattern, too, of just so many albums per year. But yeah, I and I mean, I knew the Beach Boys sound. Um, I was discussing it with one of my friends, um, and I kind of discussed it as like a warm harmonization. Um, Very warm. Which was interesting is, she, yeah, she picked up on the wall of sound yep. uh, that we'll probably get into on mm-hmm. this, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, but until really spending some, some time with this album and looking into some of uh, Brian Wilson's uh, studio work uh, and really looking at it in the time period that it exists, it, it made it a, a very interesting dive research-wise. So it's uh, it got me a little bit more turned on to Beach Boys as a whole yeah. than I ever was before. Yeah, where to where to begin here? So it's you know this is the perfect album to decide to dive into because like I said, you got the movie Love and Mercy. I think the best music biopic I've seen. Paul Dano in particular does an amazing job uh, in the footage in that movie of them creating this album. That that's part of the story is is this time period. Uh, amazing, super accurate, really just fascinating to watch. Rightfully so, there have been books and, you know, umpteen articles about this album in particular. Uh, Freaking Rolling Stone magazine has it at number two of best albums of all time. Um, mm-hmm. I did not do a ton of research for this week because it's like, I if you want to just be the Beach Boys aficionado, there's there's so many places <laughs> you can go. This is This will be a different kind of look mm-hmm. at it. But, um, yeah, I, uh, I heard this album in particular, I, I didn't really know much about the Beach Boys either, except they're the Barbara Ann band or whatever, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're early famous popular singles and all that in the, in the sixties. It's, it's surfing USA. surfing USA. It's, it's fun, but it's very dated. And it's just, if that's all they ever did, you'd be like, oh, that goofy, you know, silly novelty band in the sixties, or at least that would be my perception of it a little bit, but it's, it's a case where you have the beach boys and then you have this one man, Brian Wilson and what Brian Wilson did after becoming successful with this boy band. Uh, that's, they were totally like the BTS or whatever backstreet boys of the early sixties. And then at 23 years old, uh, Brian Wilson's like, uh, uh-uh, uh, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna try to punch up to like Bach, Beethoven level here, mm-hmm. and still try to sell pop records. And uh, what you get is is pet sounds. Um, well, I guess so, Joe. My my question to you is: uh, before knowing you were gonna do this podcast episode, had you ever heard pet sounds it's in its entirety? No, absolutely not. I've heard bits and pieces of it, but I've never heard it cover to cover, if you will. Yeah. So, um, so give, give me the, the blow by blow. What was your uh, experience? It was, I mean, like I said, I mean, we start off with um, pretty familiar territory. But after mm-hmm. that, I guess, I guess, like you said, uh, or at least alluded to, in my mind, the Beach Boys live in that kind of, or lived, I guess I should say, in that kind of stereotypical surf in USA sound. And wouldn't it be nice fortified that and then we get into like you still believe in me and that's not me where it gets to be a lot more what's the word i'm looking for like contemplative yeah but you still keep that you still keep that kind of um like airy warm tone to it which was interesting um don't talk put your head on my shoulder so that kind of made me interested 
and I mean, it's also punctuated by like Sloop John B. God only knows. Right. Right. Um, so it, it Beach Boys comes in waves. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> I like it was. That. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah, it was a fun lesson. Uh, it. I know the one, I think the one that stuck with me the most, and maybe it's just because of uh, hearing them talk about it so much too, was I know there's an answer, which I hadn't heard before now, mm. um, which I'm pretty sure, I, I don't know if you, uh, most people probably know, it was originally called Hang On To Your Ego. I've heard both versions, yeah. Yeah, um, which is interesting. They're both, I mean, they're both solid. It's just lyric changes. But uh, I think that that might be my big earworm from the album. Um, like I talked about earlier, that wall of sound is really apparent how much Brian, uh, experimented with different kinds of instruments throughout. We've got flutes. I think we had a sitar. We've got, I think, it, I think I saw that he had three different kinds of piano in the studio at any he's time. Everything. He's got Coke bottles. He's got tack piano. Mm-hmm. He's got bongos. He's got trumpets, saxophones, clarinets, bass clarinets, like every theremins like if you can think of an instrument it's probably in this album Mm -hmm. besides synthesizer which would have been in this album had they existed right if this was an 80s album there'd be a lot of synth there (laughs) um what's interesting i saw on a, a documentary a different one just called classic albums which is a fun one um they mentioned that it was kind of hard for him to get some of those instruments because at the time and again this is 66 so to put it into the context, we've got stuff like like a Rolling Stone from Bob Dylan. So we're just kind of getting into rock being in pop culture. 66 um, is a crazy year in pop music history. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the baby boomers are right to a certain extent. Like this, there's a lot of stuff going on. This is a storm <laughs> brewing here in this it's year of music. And when you look mm-hmm. at what came out compared to 65. It's all, it's all bubbling to the surface. Um, it's all happening, man. It's 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 the happening place. Um, but they made a point that a lot of the uh, musicians who played like classical instruments were kind of reluctant to be on the album because they still didn't see rock music or pop music like that as being sophisticated enough for them. Um, which is also interesting to think about and think about. Uh, yeah, how do you define sophisticated? How they might look back on that decision. Yeah, what, what does that mean? So you you mentioned how you know the album kicks off with "Wouldn't It Be Nice," and how it hearing that song it still fits with your image of them as the surfing USA blonde haired dudes on the beach. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think partially why it's a perfect opener for this album is you do get that feeling that it has that that sonic quality, and you have their lyrics. I, I'm not lyrics; they're they're. Uh, vocals and their vocal arrangements featured very prominently and it's it's that happy shimmery sound but the lyrics are melancholy in an interesting way and then also if you sat down at like a keyboard and tried to play that song and you analyze the structure of it compared to even a song from like one or two years prior you'd be like oh my god like this harmonic change here the way this bridge does that like they they dive in in terms of just making a composition really complicated while still poppy and catchy. Like that, that's a lot of the brilliance of the songs on this album is taking that, you know, that radio friendly boy band sound and vibe, but starting to really inject some serious, like 
you know, you're, you're bumping up against classical music in terms of harmonic sophistication. So that that's comes in a full effect on this album. Mm-hmm. And I think just becomes more and more apparent as you go through the songs. For sure. I mean, th- that's one of the reasons why I latched onto God Only Knows so much. Because, like, it's a great yeah. poppy song and, like, you could hear in the background and not really think much of it. But, like, if you get into the fact that, like, some of the staccato notes in there that he has in there to punctuate some of it in between lyrics and uh, the harmonies, I always try to break down whenever I listen to it. Usually when I listen to God Only Knows, I listen to God Only Knows twice because I want to <laughs> I want to try to pick apart the harmonies that they have, especially at the end. There's so much but. to catch with each, with each listen, isn't there? It's it's mm-hmm. um, That's another thing about this album, and I've... I've heard this a ton throughout the years. I mean, again, it's super influenced uh, Niagara Moon. And, and it's like every time I decide to put it on, I can just focus on a new component of it. And it's a totally different listening experience each time. Like I can't take it all in at once. So each I can make each play like a new experience. Like, oh, I'm going to just listen to like... Uh, you know what what the keyboard's doing in the background or i'll just focus on the vocal harmonies this time like there's they fit mm-hmm. so much together like a beautiful puzzle it just has like infinite replay value mm-hmm. it's it all yeah it all comes together in a way that seems so simple and then as soon as you look under the surface you realize just how many moving bits and pieces brian wilson was putting together so brilliantly and there is why I think this album deserves to be thought of as such a big deal and why it has stood the test of time and has the legacy it has is I think it's that, I mean, there's so much going on, but I think like that part of it is what's always going to stick out to me the most Mm -hmm. is we're going to get into arrangement and production talk, but it's insane. It's insane. I mean, they had the money at the time, it was $70,000 at the time to make this album. Mm-hmm. If you put that in today's money, that's like half a million. Uh, super expensive. But it's so they, they had those resources and all these wonderful studio musicians that were available. It was, the, it was this very unique time in, in Los Angeles music industry history. But even with all that, this 23 year old guy who can put together all these pieces, he can hear sh- stuff in his head. And he can make it all fit together. And because he is the the man at the top and it's really him orchestrating everything, it can be so cohesive and fit together that tightly. It's it's You had never seen that, anything like that in popular music up until that mm-hmm. point. Yeah, it really did. It changed the trajectory of popular music towards that, towards people really getting deep into the recording studio like that and involving this heavily uh, their musicality, yeah. I mean, when you were listening through it kind of with fresh ears, because like I said, I've been, this, this album has been in my brain for the last 14 years. I guess <laughs> I can't really remember how it used to sound, but like, you know, how was the balance of just like easy breezy, like pop fun and the the sing-along quality of it with, you know, the orchestras under the hood how how is that how did that balance strike you i think he balanced it really well um i mean the the i come i'm trying to think of other ways to phrase it but it's the real big takeaway is just that it's this really intricate complex well thought out you know heavily labored over internal packaging of all these instruments in a nice bow which makes it really pretty to look at on the outside and then 
sometimes I would space for a little bit just to kind of like lose myself in the music. And then I would come back and realize just how much was going on. Um, even for those early tracks, when I revisited them, like you said, if you take the piano and really try to pick it apart, you realize how intensive it is. So I did listen to it a few times. Unfortunately, unlike my other plays, I don't have it on vinyl and I don't have it on CD. So I just relied on Spotify, which An interestingly... An album you don't own on vinyl? Right? I know, it's on my list. Which is interesting, and we could talk about this too, because um, Spotify specifically has a mono and a stereo uh, release yeah. for it. Yeah. Um, and I believe, if I, if I wasn't mistaken in my research, that the preferred way is mono to listen to it. Um, yeah it was originally released as mono and i don't know how much of that is because brian wilson just freaking loved phil specter so much and mm -hmm. that influenced you know a lot of the production and arrangement choices and then including the decision to to think of the album as a mono creation so it's it's not coming there's not different sonic information coming from two s different speakers like left side and right side it's like all happening in the middle they yeah ergo mono instead of stereo and uh i've heard it both ways because i think that you know they, they capped all the master tapes obviously and then eventually provided uh stereo versions and all these different ways to listen to it in subsequent years mono sounds way better to me when you play it on speakers mm -hmm. and if you listen on headphones i gotta say i kind of like the stereo version better that's fair uh, I could see that. I think the first time I listened to it, I'd listened on stereo because I'm spoiled and I like stereo. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. As so, we do, you know, we're not in the '60s anymore. This album's 55 years old. Trends change a little bit. No, for sure. Like, because I opened up Spotify and they're like mono and stereo versions. Like, pff, I'm gonna listen to the stereo version. Of course. Um, yeah. And then I and then I thought about the significance of the fact that he he had it with mono in mind, and because I think. With my with my young ears and 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 uh, stance on this, uh, when I see mono, I'm usually like, "Oh, that's because they had the limitations on them." That's because they, they were poor, <laughs> or something. Yeah, exactly. As as bad as that they're, sounds, they're, they're, that's because their equipment wasn't that I'm good. Like it was yeah. back in the day, they did mono. Cool. Uh, they were released in stereo. Wonderful. But I, I never. I think this is the first time I really turned around. Maybe embarrassingly, this is the first time I really turned around, and I'm like. No, they use that as part of the instrumental process too. They use that towards their sound as opposed to having to use like they used it as opposed to having to work with it, which made me have a new appreciation for that and especially this cut in mono. So Yeah. Are you aware that Brian Wilson is mostly deaf in one year? I learned that while researching, which is interesting, yeah. Which is I heard that's one of the reasons too why and uh he didn't like record like performing live at the time a lot um and he did didn't he record a lot of this while he was on break from recording live he was like i just kind of want to go to the studio yeah uh from my recollection because i have seen love and mercy and at some point i gotta believe i read a brian wilson book uh he had like a, a breakdown as a plane was taken off one time like they, they were on mm -hmm. tour i forget the year maybe it was 64 65 uh, he he couldn't deal with being on a plane. He's like, I can't travel. I can't, I can't, I can't deal. Uh, I just want to work in the studio. So he he there was some agreement where he he wasn't going to have to tour. He could take it upon himself to uh, just work on the recordings. That because that's all he wanted to do. 
uh, and it's for going over the whole kind of timeline here. Pet Sounds comes out, middling commercial reception. Uh, Brian Wilson tries to top himself with smile and just pushes himself too much. Drug use becomes a problem. Mental health greatly suffers. He kind of he becomes a recluse and all screwed up. Um, with little dribs and drabs here and there for the next couple of decades of being productive in the studio. Uh, the album Love You is a notable example. That's that's a fun Brian Wilson-led uh, Beach Boys album. But it's like until he really put his life together again in like the 90s, he was not a touring entity. Mm-hmm. And then he finally came back to it uh, like with the re-release of Smile in 2004. Like you've... You know, the last couple decades, he's he's finally been able to perform publicly everywhere. But there was a long period of time he was, I mean, you were lucky to get him in the studio. A lot of years he couldn't even leave his bedroom. Yeah, I heard about that. I never dug into that period of Brian Wilson's life again because for the longest time Beach Boys existed in my peripherals. But right. I, I want to dig into that because I've heard those stories about him turning more into a recluse because of everything. And and a lot of a lot of things that I looked into pinpointed pet sounds as the start of the fall of the beach boys which i also thought interesting too because i didn't really know a lot about it but then yeah digging into that and getting all that information put that into context if you will and and again as this outsider uh i know beach boys and then i think about pet sounds so in my mind i'm like oh that's when they 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 really grew like fell into it but then to realize that not only was it their 11th album but it was also the start of these troubles for Brian Milson, et cetera. Um, it put it in an even more interesting context. I think that's probably my keyword for today, just learning all the context of what surrounded this album. Again, so many reasons why all the books and the movies and the articles exist is, yeah, there's a million different ways to, it's a fascinating point in the band's history, in recording history. Um, like I said, there's the Beach Boys and then there's Brian Wilson. There's Kokomo, <laughs> and then there's freaking She's Going Bald. Uh, that's a, <laughs> a weird song from the, the next album, Smiley Smile. But they're, it's, they're almost at odds with each other, this like uh, the, the novelty band, the nostalgia act, the, the early 60s, everything's great. We're on the sunny beach side of the band. And then Brian Wilson trying to like take down and rebuild uh, popular music as we know it, <laughs> it's it's mm-hmm. weird that these two forces kind of were locked together. It's so this period, the mid '60s, is is where the Beach Boys, in terms of just a really well-selling, you know, kind of mindless, f- fun, but just tr- kind of trivial, uh, you know, pop band, uh, that their stature really fell off, but. Pet Sounds, Smiley Smile slash Smile, and all the songs that came from this like 65 to 67 era, whenever in in whatever format they ended up being released. Like that's the reason I love this group so much mm-hmm. and care so much about this music. It's it's that. Like I can kind of take or leave a lot of the rest of it. Um, with some exceptions in the 70s, like I said, when Brian Wilson was had his marbles a little bit more. But uh, it's it's the tale of two different musical entities that are often at odds with each other. I don't I don't know how much you heard about Mike Love. Uh, just in peripherals when he was when they were talking about the actual album itself, I didn't go into him as a person slash 
uh, artist, but yeah, um, if you if you kind of think of this group as uh, a meme, you know how, how different how different members are memeified in uh, culture around uh, this band. You know the the common sentiment uh, in Beach Boys fandom is uh, Mike Love is just the money guy. He's like the kind of asshole. Okay. Uh, conservative just doesn't give a crap about the art i mean i don't know the ins and outs and how much of that is really fair i'm not gonna it's kind of gets thorny but he he's like the guy who is pushing against brian wilson being like no we need to do what we do best make the money satisfy people what are you doing with this art shit what do these lyrics mean hmm. what the hell is this what's this let's talk about trips and drugs get out of he's so it's he's a force of kind of keeping things conservative and, and back to basics and was, you know, it's rumored he was pretty unsupportive of Brian Wilson making all these more out there psychedelic or experimental artistic decisions. And it's, it's especially once you get past like this album and Smiley Smile, it's such a patchwork of different people trying different things and, uh, it's it's a mess. Like <laughs> the Beach Boys, for so much of their career, become a mess after this. But a beautiful mess because Brian Wilson has something to do with it. But mm. so that that's where you get the comment. Like you said, this is their eleventh album. It did not sell as well initially as uh, as what they'd been doing before, and it c- kind of becomes chaos for the for the band after this. Um, but fascinating chaos. Can I pop in a couple of random fun facts, which I don't know where I'd be able to put otherwise? Um, By all means, that's what this whole freaking podcast is about. Because like what what blew my mind, and I only found this about uh, in a documentary that I watched too, that same classic albums, one that at the same time they put out a class, Capitol Records put out a greatest hits album because they really didn't believe in pet sounds, mm-hmm. um, which is wild. And also apparently it's their first one, which is interesting, but. Yeah, um, and then also the fact that it took until 2000 for the album to go platinum. That I did not know. That's pretty crazy. But And then I dug into that more because I heard them say that in the in the documentary, they're like, it took like 20 years for this to go platinum. And I'm like, well, a little more than that, actually, apparently. <laughs> um, but apparently it's because of the records keeping because um, I didn't know the whole process in which an album goes platinum. Um, yeah. But you actually have to send in the receipts and like the the proof that you got you sold this many to distributors and you sold this many in general and apparently they just didn't do it for pet sounds and then when they realized that it was getting bigger they didn't have the proper paperwork anymore <laughs> so they tried to be like oh yeah look at these they did these numbers but they were like well we got to find the proper numbers for it so uh they had to they had to keep going back and this is from a rolling stone article um, yeah. That between the fact that they didn't, when they realized that they should be certifying a platinum, it was too late and they didn't have the proper paperwork anymore. Um, so apparently it, it probably should have been platinum long before. But it's interesting to think, too, that we, we've kind of been talking around it, but the album was very much before its time. Yeah. Uh, but it's almost, you, I feel like a lot of people say that usually as a big compliment in terms of like oh look at this thing that's before its time and they're given its roses in that time yeah it got this appreciated was, this was so much before its time that in its time it wasn't it wasn't realized that it was before its time um, yeah 
Yeah, it uh, it's kind of like the opposite of the Beatles. Yeah. You know, both were just essentially, although both produced lovely music still, I'm not going to say it's not good, but just ultimately kind of trivial, whatever fun, radio-friendly pop music and graduated into trying to really break new ground and experiment and just be out there. And the Beatles, the more they did that, the more they were celebrated for it. And when the Beach Boys tried to do it, they collapsed. And it's weird kind of how that happened, these two groups side by side Mm -hmm. that were received totally differently. The only other, I know I saw a quote from Paul McCartney saying that it was his inspiration for Sgt. Pepper, which just kind of, uh, again, one gets, I mean, the other one, in fairness, now Pet Sounds is on all kinds of lists of greatest albums of all time. But it would have been nice if it got, wouldn't it be nice? (laughs) <laughs> if um yeah. if it got that uh, recognition in its time or even closer yeah. to its time in general but yeah the the other example i can think of is uh like the velvet underground's debut album yeah where that's so influential now but at the time but in their case they were nobodies and had hadn't like gotten commercial success yet anyway it's weird how the Beach Boy, you know, their 11th album, how many t- charting singles did they have? And then, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, I just wasn't made for these times indeed. Yeah. It's interesting. Now, now that you mentioned that, that made me think of what another comparison would be, which the only other one I'm thinking of at the moment is Bob Dylan's Jump to Electri- Electric, which would have been about this time too, as far as like a jolting style change. But again, people jumped on, well, more or less. I mean, Bob some people Dylan. jumped off, but a lot of people jumped on. Like, Yeah. He's, yeah. But now and then we have the Beach Boys going from, um, you know, cars, songs about surfing and cars and going into deeper stuff. And yeah, it was a detriment to them. It's interesting how big of a role the dice that can be. But it's, it's crazy. Um <sighs> Because this album, in, to my ears, is again, it's such a different beast from the rest of their stuff. Even, you know, like I said, Kokomo. That's, that's, you, you almost wish Brian Wilson was just his own entity and you could totally separate the two. It's weird, very weird lumping them together. But uh, yeah. yeah, where do we, I don't know. See, so you, you heard this album a bunch of times. You knew some of the songs. Mm-hmm. Do you have uh, like a favorite song or favorite moments? I guess God Only Knows is still going to be pretty much at the top for you. So God Only Knows was, so coming into it, I would say my top three were just God Only Knows, Sloop John B, which is actually one of my mom's favorite songs, which is I think maybe my first exposure to the Beach Boys. Um, And then Wouldn't It Be Nice, just because those are what I knew. Walking out of it, um, I would say my new top three are probably, I know there's an answer, just wasn't made for these times and mm-hmm. Caroline. No. Yeah. Such an interesting end on Caroline. No too, with the train sounds and the end and the dogs barking. Yeah. Um, but then even the, the tone of the song itself is so kind of hesitant and sad mm-hmm. and a little confused and it's like kind of a, interesting way to to let down your your pop audience in 1966 i like yeah i mean and i like that too i mean i think um a lot of the songs uh are are in the vein 
of like a confused early love, which when you when you compare it to boy bands in general, which I never made that connection, which is kind of interesting. But yeah, they are very much boy band. Um, that's their target demo, people who are just phoning over love at this point and trying to figure out what love is. And so we've got all the songs of, you know, don't talk, put your head on my shoulder, waiting for the day, all that, which is kind of speaking to that. Yeah, putting it into a time period and, and thinking about their demo um, recontextualizes a lot. It's kind of like it's the next part of the story after all those fun, just kind of like teen romp songs. It's it's like the part of life where you're starting to feel kind of confused and asking a lot of questions and kind of melancholic and questioning. And yeah. what, what what's the next story? You're clearly just going to go into these very kind of somber adult themes after this like where do you go after caroline no as just this uh you know all-american pop band uh where they did go is psych weird epic kind of insanity um i get by i really i love smiley smile and smile but it's like they just totally went in a avant-garde uh abstract mm-hmm. direction after this but it's yeah it's like it kind of it uh, presents an interesting question thematically I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to give that a listen after this because I have not heard of that, but I'm intrigued to continue this story. It's bonkers. That whole like '67, what the what the Beach Boys did in that year. There's so many great songs, but it's like even to just figure out how to listen to it, like what version from what year in what state of completion. Like it's just mm. everything. It's it was like a <laughs> it was a comet, a brilliant comet that just burned out but in the in the span of time it was going it was it was wild like so much amazing music came out of that time but also a lot of hardship um i recommend if you really dive into it you can listen to the smile sessions you can listen to the officially released album smiley smile brian wilson's like 2004 presentation of smile is also really cool i think like there's there's so many different ways to come at it but uh um yeah, this Pet Sounds is like right before that just creative explosion and burnout and preceded immediately by, you know, pretty still innocent uh, early 60s pop tunes. And it's in this weird middle space. I think it's pretty fair to say there's not any bad track on the album. Like you just listed a lot of songs as like being near your, your top favorites. Yeah. Like were there any songs that didn't uh, uh, catch your fancy as much? no <laughs> I'm, I'm pulling up the list now to see like if there's any ones that didn't necessarily hit yeah. for me but i mean if i really had to stretch maybe the title track pet sounds was okay but i mean no none were bad not by a long right. shot i think at that point you just have to play the game of which ones were greatest and which ones were just great <laughs> yeah yeah um, which even that gets a little hairy yeah, so no, I don't think so. Which which is an accomplishment for so many tracks on an album too. Oh yeah. No, it's it's the the scope and ambition in the songwriting and production and arranging and the the like the vocals, like every part of this, it's amazing he could pull it off. And again, he was twenty three years old. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I, there's there's no part of this album I don't have a pretty strong affection for, but I got, I think the most like transcendent and again ahead of their time interesting 
moments for me is like, uh, I just wasn't made for these times mm-hmm. is maybe the standout for me. And that's the longest track and just the, the harpsichord and the, how the vocals build up and the, the theremin solo and the lyrics. It's the only song that's not just explicitly about love or love and trouble, like kind of goes, goes beyond that in an interesting way. And uh, either that or let's go away for a while. I love that. That song is, is a, is a universe in two minutes and 18 seconds, all the different parts and movements it has that instrumental. Um, I literally like, I'm working on a song now. I don't know when it'll get released, but I'm literally like referencing let's go away for a while and how it builds and what parts are in it as I'm making my tune. Like just, it's such a well to draw from, but yeah, God only knows. I think it's pretty fair. God only knows is like one of the most well-known songs from this bunch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, the the vocal harmonization on God Only Knows. I mean, on the whole album, really, but that one always just, like I said, if I listen to it once, I got to listen to it twice. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and that's, uh, just in case you're curious, that's Mike Love in the middle going, bah, 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 bah. <laughs> he's got that low nasally voice. Now I know who I usually have to, because whenever I sing along to it, I usually have to find the lower voices. So now I know who I'm singing with. <laughs> mm-hmm. Singing with Mike. There you go. Yeah, Mike Love, he's, he's a very controversial character. Kind of reminds me of Don Henley from the Eagles. Okay. Uh, okay. Just, they're, uh, you know, he's he's kind of thought of as, as the asshole, but he's probably also the reason they could stay together for so long and keep turning a buck, too. Like, you, mm. I don't know, maybe, maybe you need a guy like that sometimes. Yeah, I was going to say. Uh, just from what I'm reading between the lines, it seems like he antagonized Brian too, and I won't stand for that. But uh, no, I feel like the member that I I mostly stood out to me while watching them all talk was, I think I'm pronouncing his last name right, Al Jardine. Al Jardine, maybe yeah, the the yeah uh, Al Jardine. The the he's like the he's either the cousin or the neighbor. I think the cousin. Oh, he's the neighbor. Because Mike yeah. loves the cousin. Yeah, he's he's yeah, the yeah. neighborhood kid. I don't know. I just him talking about, and I, I mean, maybe I'm just biased because I think he was the one who, who proposed them do the cover of Sloop John B. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I don't know. I liked, I liked his kind of vibe as well. Um, I I got the vibe that he was much more of the folky kind uh, Mm. of the group, um, which was interesting. So I think he was the other member outside of uh, Brian and um, also Carl, but yeah, Car- Carl is probably the best vocalist. Yeah, um, of course he's singing, and God only knows as well. But yeah, I mean, going into this, and probably rightfully so, I really only knew by name Brian. Yeah, but then going into it and looking into different people talking about their creation of the album and people talking about the album itself. Yeah, Carl and Al, I think, stood out to me as well. So yeah, I mean, there really is something to be said still for the unit of these guys, the Beach Boys themselves still and what they could accomplish with their vocals. Like there's really, you know, there is not another group like them where their voices blended like that and they could do so much. And, you know, a tune like uh, I Just Wasn't Made for These Times where it's like two different choruses going on at the same time, like a vocal round. Mm-hmm. There's like, there's, you know, them just singing sometimes I feel very sad, but then there's, 
the, the part with more words going on, like in the background. I don't know if you, you picked that yeah, up. Yeah. And that's what, I mean, that's one of the things that I love to, um, whenever I re-listen to a track of the Beach Boys now, one of the things that I love to do is just quote unquote, like following different leads, different vocal rounds, and just really zeroing in on a specific yeah. line and seeing all the different notes and tones in that one and then going back i was like okay so almost like a choose your own adventure it's like okay now let's listen to this round yes Um, this album is a choose your own adventure uh yeah just going back and finding all these different things to listen to all these different leads to follow um musically and vocally it's a it's a real treat yeah and uh we we can't totally negate you know the importance of the beach boys themselves not just brian wilson in you know providing that this mm-hmm. would be a different album and probably not as good if it was just Brian Wilson totally striking out on his own. But um, so in addition to the, you know, pretty fantastic vocals here, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about how intricate and ambitious the arrangements are, but the arrangement is only going to be as good as the people performing. And we have the wrecking crew in full force on this album. And you were uh, doing some research on the Wrecking Crew? Yeah. Um, I I feel like the Wrecking Crew, once I started researching them, I realized that, that I've known the Wrecking Crew for a while. They play Just on everything from the 60s. Yeah. Exactly. Um, everything from Sonny and Cher to the Mamas and the Papas. Um, the, the, it was so... I don't know. I guess I guess I never really dug into session musicians like carol Kay and the wrecking crew um yeah. but then when i did i realized that you could see their their fingerprints on so many acts um and like shout you said out you, to that uh documentary about the wrecking crew mm-hmm. i think may still be on netflix but also an excellent music documentary you realize how important those players are and how they should get their praises sung a little more often <laughs> yeah they, they are the music yeah it's interesting. I saw. I need to watch that because I think I have it on my list now. Because I, I think it's still on Netflix. But um, just the mindset of session musicians too, just going in, putting their heads down, and putting out tracks, and not really expecting to be realized for a lot. I know there was an interview with Carol Kay saying she never really expected to be, you know, really a, a prolific or held in a high esteem as she possibly is now. Um, but damn, they're all so talented. Yeah. Yes. And workhorses, and just can in, really can inject their own creativity into it when appropriate, while also like taking instruction very well. Hal Blaine, one of the all-time greats, uh, he's the drummer. He's he's actually from Holyoke, Mass, which is very close to me. And it's it's sad to think like ten years later, Hal Blaine is working security at an airport mm. as the music industry makes one of its many drastic changes, but. Uh, you know, they, these guys were riding high for a while. It's, it's kind of like also when you realize all the Motown classic hits is all the same few dudes in some like basement studio in Detroit. Like it's 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 a very select group of people can create all this iconic music, and mm-hmm. it's like keeps being the same players. But yeah, so that that's a huge part of why this album is so great and works is is the the access to all that instrumental talent too. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, and this is kind of backtracking a little bit, but um, I think Brian, with his own 
just how tight he had everything planned out in his head. I think he was able to utilize the Wrecking Crew so well in that sense where mm. he would come in. I heard he would come in and just have different manuscripts that he would hand to everyone and then talk to them all individually and then talk to them as a collective. Um, and yeah, when you're working with someone who, like you said earlier, in, in, uh, in the Wrecking Crew where they can come in, put in so much work, put in their own, put in their own flavor but also are really good at following the creative lead of whoever they have and enhancing that that i think that's another reason why everything sounds so good but mm-hmm. yeah there's a real symbiotic relationship that's because a good word you, yeah you hear i mean session listening to session tapes for this album is always fascinating because you again this 23 year old kid who can't ride on airplanes and he's like apparently you know he's not too far away from like a mental health collapse but he sounds so cool and together and authoritative but not um uh overly so overly pushy he's just like right in the pocket with his studio direction Mm -hmm. just like it's hearing a freaking master director at work with the musical instruction he can give to any player in any moment as he's like dialing in exactly what he wants like that's his brilliance almost as much as his like chord progressions on a keyboard is just how mm-hmm. he can effortlessly or it feels effortlessly but how he can direct all these musicians to just perfectly replicate what he hears in his head just th- how he could close that gap uh is amazing to me absolutely yeah, so like everything is perfect about this album and works wonderfully and it's amazing. <laughs> you know, I don't this is I'm glad we did this episode, but it pretty much turned out how I how I thought it might. It's uh, yeah, I mean, I'm glad I'm glad uh, we're able to give it its flowers now. Um and it's like I said earlier, it's just so wild that it it wasn't really fully heralded until after its time. But there's just so yeah. much and and like you alluded to earlier too, there's so much more to dig into also and the resources oh, yeah. are there. Um, yes. in many different yeah, we, formats. We scratched the surface barely. Mm-hmm. So, what, what do you think of the lyrics overall, and especially compared to stuff like the Beatles or Dylan? You know, if if we're throwing them all in that lot, if we're popping in Dylan, they're so simple. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, even compared to the Beatles, they're pretty straightforward. Um, but I think that's part of the charm of it. Um, they're pretty upfront with what they're talking about, right? Like, I'm not made like. Uh, not feeling right at the time where you are, not feeling like you fit in, thinking about how love works, thinking about love unrequited. But I think that quote-unquote simplistic lyrical style, and some of that might too be, I forget the person who Brian wrote with who was basically... Tony Asher. Yeah, who was the jingle, who wrote jingles. I don't think that's a bad thing, right? Like, um, yeah. having having such simple and straightforward lyrics um, complemented by the complex yet simple on the surface artistry of the harmonies and the instruments. I think if they were super deep and not, well, they are deep, but if they were super convoluted and and more metaphorical, I think it might've not worked as well. It would have worked well, but I think, I think they're, they work well for with what they're looking to do and with what they are uh, presenting musically. Yeah. Yep. I'd say exactly the same thing. People sometimes kind of disparage how simple or maybe childish the lyrics can be, but there's so much else going on that it's just, it's a nice contrast to have that simplicity and that kind of like emotional, you know, simplicity and openness when you got the majesty that is the rest of 
you know, what the music is doing and the, the harmonies and the, uh, the instrumentation and everything else. I, I really feel like somebody said the, the music succeeds in spite of the lyrics, but I, I think it's, it's, I think it goes hand in hand. The just, Mm -hmm. you want, if you have it all so cluttered, it'd be like a a milkshake with too many different ingredients. This is just the right balance. It complements, they complement each other nicely in how, if you look under the hood too much, how opposed they are um, with simplicity and complexity. So, Yeah. Um, and when you get into Smile and Smiley Smile and all that, the lyrics go just about as weird as the arrangements, which <laughs> okay. is its own fun. I, I still like it, but it doesn't quite have the same feeling of just timelessness and uh, universe, universality. Is that a word? It doesn't have so. that the way Pet Sounds does, but me being the weird listener I am, I still love it all the same. But That's- uh, if anybody's listening to this and has not dug into all this music we've talked about in earnest, I don't know why you wouldn't if you're a fan of Niagara Moon, because they're definitely uh, a, a part of my DNA for sure. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I... Uh, you know what can you say? It's freaking pet sounds. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, any 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 last thoughts on your end? Um, not really. Do you want to do the three words to sum it up, like we did? We'll do the three words. What do you got? Let's do the three words. Um, man, I should have realized I was up first when I said it. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna say contemplative, warm, and let's go with intricate. Yep. Yeah. Contemplative, warm, and intricate. Definitely all those things. Um, I'm going to say melancholic, uh, groundbreaking, lush. Okay. This is a a lush album. The definition of lush to my ears. Yeah. No, that's a good one. All that uh, spring reverb and and, the whole thing. Masterpiece. Uh, Well, Joe, thank you so much for digging into this one with me and uh very cool that you kind of heard it with fresh ears too i was i was uh, really happy to get your perspective as kind of a, a beach boys newbie mm-hmm, for sure thank you again for having me on and uh yeah i'm gonna definitely continue this dig into beach boys now that i have a new appreciation of them not just as uh in my peripheral but now in the forefront so awesome So that was it. We're done. Thanks for listening all the way through. I I hope we did Brian proud. I hope it was fun. So with that, I'm going to bid you adieu until two Wednesdays from now, at which point we'll be talking Fleetwood Mac's Tusk. Ta-ta till then. (laughs) ¶¶